Well, I hope that you are reading the book of John. Hoping that everybody in our church will take some time this summer and work through it. We do plan to launch our formal study of the book of John when the students get back this fall, so we're really looking forward to that. What I want to do today, though, is address the topic of common grace. Common grace. On June 6th, I preached a sermon titled, What Have We Learned from the Pandemic? And in that sermon, I made passing reference to the theme of common grace, and I told you that at some point in the future, I would like to come back to that. Well, here we are in the future. And I am unconvinced that modern Christians really have a robust theological understanding of what common grace is. What is it? What does it mean for us? And ultimately, how can we use common grace evangelistically? Theologian Wayne Grudem defines common grace this way. Common grace is the grace of God by which He gives people innumerable blessings that are not part of salvation. Now, saving grace concerns the atonement that Jesus Christ made for us and for our sins on Calvary. God indeed offers just full and complete pardon to anyone who comes to Him by faith. Anyone who puts his or her faith in the finished work of Christ on Calvary will be pardoned, will experience resurrection and new life. It is saving grace that rescues us from eternal damnation. And, of course, appropriately, we tend to em- emphasize saving grace. But the fact is, believers also experience God's common grace in multiple ways every day of our life. And so, too, do unbelievers. God's common grace is experienced by everyone. And if we understand it properly, it really can be used as a tool to help us point people to saving grace. And in addition, if we understand it properly, we will become more grateful people. And probably we will become a little less paranoid about the future also. All right, wealthy Christians in particular tend to really struggle over the sin of fear about the future. And American Christians tend to be very wealthy and very fearful. So let's turn first to Romans chapter 13. We finished the book of Romans, but one of the things I'm doing this summer is going back and drawing out some of the application of Romans that we did not take the time to look into when we were working our way through the book line by line. Romans 13. In Romans 13, Paul explains the gospel believer's default posture toward human government. And I dealt in a previous sermon with the issue of civil disobedience. When is it appropriate to resist a human ruler? I'm not returning to any of that today. In fact, what I want to do is draw your attention to a single line this morning. But let's begin with verse 1, and let's establish our default posture. Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except 
from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now, Paul makes the same point three times. All human government is instituted by God. And Paul continues describing the function of human government. Verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. And that's the line I want to draw your attention to. He is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So clearly, God establishes human government as a deterrent to evil. And right away, we all have a question, right? What about corrupt human governments? How do you reconcile Romans 13 with a passage like Psalm 2, which describes rulers as rebelling against God, throwing off His moral restraints? Let me just address this question very briefly so it doesn't become a distraction. To answer that question, you really must begin with the foundational question that we've asked here several times. Not what does the Bible say about human government, but what does the Bible say about everything? The Bible teaches that God's good creation was cursed. God cursed it when man rebelled against Him in the garden. And the Bible teaches the total depravity of mankind, every last individual. That means that every single human governor through all of human history is corrupt. Every last one of them totally depraved just like you and me. I really am surprised by Christians who seem to think that we can fix government corruption through another election cycle. Friends, it's just not going to happen. I'm surprised by Christians who talk about current government corruption as though it's some sort of modern invention. No, it's been around since the very beginning. I'm surprised by Christians who think, well, government corruption that's always just in one party, not the other. No, It's a human problem. I'm surprised by Christian nationalists. We've talked about Christian nationalists in the summer. We think that somehow America was founded as this sort of pristine, beautiful Christian government back in the 18th century following the American Revolution. Friends, that's just historical ignorance. The founding fathers were no angels. Every human government in every corner of the world was, is, and will be corrupt. No exceptions. If you believe in total depravity, why would you assume that depraved human beings will become good governors? Psalm 2 is true. But of course, total depravity does not mean that we commit every sin that we possibly could. There are degrees of depravity, that is true. And certainly some governments are more depraved than others. 
And certainly some human governments are better than others. That is true. But again, we need to just start here. All human governors, and therefore all human governments, are fallen. No exceptions. In that context, then, I draw your attention to verse 4. Paul says of the human ruler, for he is God's servant for your good. Does that surprise you? If you, if you bristle at that statement, all right, your, your problem, friends, is not with me. Okay? It's the Holy Spirit who inspired those words through an apostle. But it is curious that the same apostle who wrote this also wrote, there is none righteous, no, not one. So you have, you have to keep these two parameters in mind. So how do you reconcile this tension? Well, would you observe very carefully that Paul does not say the ruler himself is good. The king does not escape depravity. Rather, Paul says the ruler, notice this, is God's servant for your good. Twice in verse 4, Paul calls the ruler God's servant. You recall what God said to the pen of Isaiah concerning the pagan emperor Cyrus. Here's what he said. He says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd or my servant, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of a temple, your foundation shall be laid. God desires a temple for the Jews in Jerusalem. And so God commands a pagan emperor to accomplish this good for the Jews. That pagan is God's servant to accomplish good for the Jews. Friends, God uses corrupt, corrupt human governors for our good because there are no other kinds. If you deny that God bends the will of corrupt rulers to his own purposes, then you have to deny God's sovereignty over all human rulers because there are no other kinds. Yes, some are better than others, but we are all depraved. In every election cycle, I cast my ballot. And when I watch the election returns, they don't always go the way I had hoped. Right? We've all experienced that. But nevertheless, I can just say with utter confidence, well, he is God's servant for my good. I don't know how that's going to work out, but he is God's servant for my good. And you've got to remember that Paul wrote this even while vile emperors were sitting on the throne in Rome. And some of them soon began persecuting Christians. If you think that today's politicians are corrupt, and they are, I would take just about every last one of them over any first century emperor. Read the Roman historian Suetonius. Don't do it on a Sunday afternoon. And you will discover the depths of depravity of these individuals. It's just unimaginable. In fact, maybe don't read them. <laughs> but would you just consider two points? First, you may need to just adjust your conception of what is good. Friends, let God define for you what is your best good. We almost always get it wrong. 
We are so easily influenced by the American prosperity gospel that we really have trouble thinking in biblical categories. When the early emperors began persecuting the church, it exploded in its growth. I mean, it exploded. And that phenomenon has repeated itself many times over through church history. If your priorities are God's priorities, then you can really just look at even the most pagan of emperors and see the goodness that God brought about through their vile persecutions of the church. It really is true. And secondly, I'll just point out that bad government is still better than no government. Look at the countries where there is a complete breakdown in political authority. People throw up barricades in the streets. Mercenaries cruise around in pickup trucks, popping off rounds from their AK-47s. Do you really want your kids walking to school with bullets snapping through the alleys? Do any of us want to go live in Myanmar today? When you appreciate just how awful our circumstances could be, then you really begin to appreciate God's common grace. We really don't have it very bad here in America, friends. We really, really don't. I know many American Christians with two houses and three cars and four televisions and a million plus dollars in retirement savings, a stock portfolio earning 10% a year, a boat down in the dock, opportunities to travel and dine out as they please, and they just they go around complaining about how bad things are. I'm just I'm almost puzzled by that. They've spent a lifetime getting richer and richer. And it's astonishing how much wealth they have. And they just go around and say, oh, it's just so bad all the time. Really? And they, they look at you like your, your head is kind of buried in the sand if you don't wake up and see how bad it really is. And I'm just like, ah, my life is actually pretty good. We are the richest people in world history by a long shot. We need to just take Pastor Fant's advice from a couple weeks ago. Here's what he told us. Just take out a sheet of paper and write down 25 things that you're grateful for. And if you're an American, you can probably write down 50 things or 75 things. And ask yourself this question, how many people around the world and through all of human history have half of the things on your list? How about 25% of the things on your list? How about 10% of the things on your list? I hate to say it, but wealthy Americans talking about how bad things are sound like spoiled brats compared to most of the world. In a Washington Post article, Guadam Nair writes, After adjusting for cost of living differences, a typical American still earns an income that is ten times the income received by the typical person in the world. Ten times greater. He notes further, the average U.S. resident estimated that the global median individual income is about 20000 a year. And that's what our guess is. We would guess that most people around the world earn 20000 a year. In fact, the real answer is about a tenth of that figure, roughly 2100 per year. Similarly, Americans typically place themselves in the top 37% of the world's income distribution. However, the vast majority of U.S. residents rank comfortably in the top 10%. Our problem is not that we have too little, but too much. You can reach a point where the good things no longer give. I know believers 
And I've often thought, you know, I, I think they, they probably just have too much to ever be happy again. I actually know people like that. I think they're, they're never going to be happy again because they have too much at this point. Now, friends, I'm not trying to make a statement pro or con about any current or past administration. That's not my purpose. Other than to say this, that God has indeed blessed us enormously through many administrations. And Romans 13 is a magnificent statement of common grace. A good God gives us rulers, even sinful rulers, because there are no other kinds to accomplish good for us. So don't wallow in despair every time an election doesn't go your way. God is good. I've been dismayed by so many evangelical Christian nationalists who believe that Donald Trump was the nation's last hope. Well, God took away their idol and exposed their total lack of gratitude for His common grace. Even while their stock, their stock portfolio just skyrocketed. It's like, what's going on with you people? Are you grateful or not? And again, I can already just hear the criticisms. I am naive because I don't embrace all the conspiracy theories about how we are just moments away from losing it all and seeing our nation plunge into utter darkness. But believe me, I, I've read and I've heard those theories all my life. And I have chosen instead to embrace gratitude and trust in God's common grace. It has sustained me for 40 years and will sustain you. Since the flood, God has never again judged us with the severity we deserve. It just hasn't happened and will not happen again. It cannot because of the Noachian covenant. So let's return to the flood. But let's take a stop in Psalm 37. All right, I want to go back to the flood, which we talked about back on June the 6th, but let's stop in Psalm 37. And I just want to show you several passages today that speak to this issue of common grace. Back in October of 2008, long before I had come to this church, I was in a church leadership meeting and we were discussing the sudden economic downturn due to the September 2008 market crash. Anyone recall that market crash back in September 2008? On September 29, 2008, the Dow Jones Industrial Average plummeted 777 points, the largest single-day drop to that point in history. Well, as you recall, fear spread rapidly through the country. And that fear was just palpable in the room with that church leadership. And I remember just feeling anxiety just rising in my own heart. The more people talked, the more I got anxious, the more fearful I became. I didn't go into that meeting at all fearful. And all of a sudden I thought, well, maybe I'm supposed to be more afraid. You know, it was just sort of one of these gloom and doom meetings, like it's, it's all over. It was utterly depressing. But I'll never forget what happened. There was a moment in the middle of all that where the oldest man in the room just sat back, crossed his arms, and chuckled. And he quoted Psalm 37, 25. I have been young, and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. And friends, the fear just evaporated. Gone. That's a man who understands common grace. When is the last time you even thought about the market collapse in 2008? 
Did you survive that? Are you okay? All the fear, all the anxiety. Are you okay today? We're okay today. The Dow dropped to 7,200 after that on February 9th, and Friday it was at 35,000. You are okay. And now let's turn to Genesis chapter 8 and discover again what God said in the aftermath of the flood. Now, again, I don't want to be naive. Bad times come. Hard times come. That's not what I'm talking about today. This is not a sermon on the prosperity gospel. Not by any means. But I think we can be so sour that we really forget about God's goodness, God's common grace to us. Genesis chapter 8. And let's recall a couple ideas that we examined back on June 6th when I preached that sermon entitled, What Have We Learned from the Pandemic? God clearly told Adam back in Genesis 3 that the ground and its produce was cursed. Not just the ground, but its produce was cursed. Where healthy, edible plants and fruit trees grew in abundance, we now find thorns and thistles. To hear some Christians speak, all you need is your daily multivitamin and some essential oils, and you can cure any disease known to mankind, right? And friends, that is both theologically and medically ignorant. God cursed the ground and its produce. Your multivitamins do not grow on trees any more than your penicillin pills. Neither one is organic. Nature no longer produces all the wonderful grocery products full of vitamins and minerals that we need to survive. We do not live in Eden. The ground and its produce is cursed. Almonds are good for you, but wild almonds are cursed by the fall contain cyanide. And eating just a handful will kill you. Since the curse, uncultivated apples are now tiny, bitter, and maggot-infested. Lima beans, watermelons, potatoes, eggplants, and cabbages, and many other plants are derived from bitter and poisonous ancestors cursed by the fall. Rye, oats, turnips, radishes, beets, leeks, and lettuce all began as weeds before human cultivation. Corn's wild ancestor, Teosinte, is about the size of your finger and contains rock-like coverings on its seeds. It looks nothing like modern corn before cultivation. And I mentioned Teosinte on June the 6th, not knowing that we had an expert on corn here in our church. Parat Kunduru, he's here this morning. There's our expert right there. From India, he is doing his Ph.D. work on corn production. And I had an amazing conversation with him back on July 4th after we ate Bert's corn. All right, I really I wanted to know more about the complexity of raising corn. And if you want to know more, ask Bharat. He knows all about it. And he tells me this. It literally took a Native American centuries of cultivation and selection to transform Teosinte into the wonderful ears of corn that we enjoy today. Centuries of God's image bearers laboring against the thorns and the thistles to produce these wonderful corn cobs that we have today. If you like corn, thank God for a persistent Native American farmer. Friends, the ground and its produce is cursed. There are many Christians who are very opposed to modern medicines and vaccines because they don't occur in nature. Well, friends, neither do your organic groceries that you pay a fortune for. If you plucked your groceries straight from nature, you would be dead. And there wouldn't be enough for all of us anyway. We'd all die. 
God cursed the ground and its produce. Now, Genesis 7 tells us of a universal flood. And it tells us, frankly, what we all deserve. But Genesis 8 tells us God is not going to send us any more floods. And look at the middle of verse 21. Genesis 8, 21. I will never again curse the ground because of man. That's a reference to the flood. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Now friends, doesn't that sound odd? And logically we would call that a non sequitur. It means it doesn't follow. God will never again curse us because the intention of our hearts are still evil. I mean, shouldn't that read, God will just keep on cursing us because the intentions of our hearts are evil. And that's how you would expect it to read, right? God's just going to go right on cursing us because we're just as bad as we ever were. But a good God does not judge us with the severity that we deserve. He's not going to do it. We are no better off today than we were before the flood. Nevertheless, God graciously determined never to strike the earth again with a magnitude of a global flood. And instead of judgment, we find truly a magnificent statement of common grace. Verse 22, while the earth remains, we can be certain of this. Is the earth still here today? If the earth is still here today, this promise is still in place. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. A good God will continually send us the seasons of the year, the regularity of night and day, both of which are necessary for crop cycles. But notice especially the words seed time and harvest. Those words imply human industry and human ingenuity. These are part of the ongoing goodness of God. God continually sends us farmers to plant at seed time and to reap at harvest time. And God gives us PhD students at Clemson's to really understand our groceries and to make them better for everybody. I'm really, really grateful for people like Barat who come and work on corn because I like corn. The fact is, we are still fallen. But friends, God gave us unregenerate farmers to feed us, just like God gives us unregenerate rulers as servants for our good. And God uses sinful doctors to cure us and sinful police officers to protect us, and sinful builders to build houses for us. God simply refuses to judge us with the severity we deserve. Instead, here's what He does. He takes rebellious, sinful image bearers, and He uses them, even in their opposition, to restore goodness to His creation and to improve our lives Friends, you can go into the emergency room today and you can be operated on by a highly trained physician who said his morning prayers to an idol. And God will cure you through his skill. That food that appears three times daily on your table comes from the human ingenuity that God graciously gave to image-bearing farmers 
Ancient farmers all over the globe took wild plants and domesticated, grafted, cross-pollinated, and genetically altered them, in some cases through centuries of crop cycles, until our modern grocery products were finally achieved. One estimate suggests that ancient farmers transformed the ground from 0.1% productivity to about 90% productivity. It's a lot of work. The history of global food production, the first step to human survival, is a global testimony to the goodness of God, that God made us in His own image and likeness to go out and exercise dominion over all creation. And it reaffirms the truth that God does not judge us with the severity that we deserve. Friends, you just, you just drive across the great plains of America and witness those monstrous tractors just tilling up the earth. Look at those enormous combines just spinning their blades through endless fields of wheat. Those diesel engines hauling truckloads of wheat to the grain elevators. Those enormous machines hurling down the tracks, tugging train loads, train loads of produce into the major cities. Friends, that is all the fulfillment of Genesis 8 and verse 22. All that global food production. That's all the fulfillment of Genesis 8 and verse 22. And that's all God's common grace. Are we willing to just look at the tractor and see that? Or is it just modern technology? This is all the common grace of God. Now let's look at a couple more passages. Psalm 145. Psalm 145. This is a psalm that really celebrates God's goodness. And David begins by extolling God as worthy of praise forevermore. And frankly, if you have a chance this afternoon, perhaps you can sit down and reflect on this entire psalm. Psalm 145. But would you look specifically at verse 9? The Lord is good to all. Think of that. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He made. His mercy just hangs over all of creation. Every last human being on planet earth has experienced God's goodness in one form or another. No exceptions. Every corner of God's creation, despite its fallenness, has been touched by God's mercy Friends, if you are not buried under a flood of waters rising the top of the mountains this morning, you have been touched by the mercy of God. And notice what David says about our food. I think if we lived in an agricultural society, we would appreciate these verses all that much more. Look at verse 15. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. He's not saying that everybody realizes there's a God, but frankly, we're all dependent on God for our food. Verse 16, you open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. I wonder, have you ever learned to interpret history like a farmer? It's actually a very healthy exercise. Who isn't amazed by the mighty pyramids of Khufu, Khafre, and Menkare? Those magnificent stone mountains rising gloriously from the desert floor. Friends, those pyramids were built, get this, a millennium before Moses. If Moses saw the pyramids, he was looking at structures that were a thousand years old. 
But from a farmer's perspective, I think the most intriguing detail about the pyramids is not the pyramids, but the farming techniques that fed so many thousands of laborers. Who fed all those laborers? We tend to forget about the farmers. But friends, if we were all hunter-gatherers, and it took one person to feed one person, guess what we would all be doing? None of us are going to go off and build a pyramid or play music or kick a soccer ball or paint a picture or build telescopes and peer out the stars. We're not going to do it. We're in survival mode. We're going to go out and find food. And frankly, we would have no culture at all to bring into that shining city in the hill, the New Jerusalem, which we talked about last week. Civilization begins to develop when one person can feed more than one person. When one person can feed a second person, that second person can go do something else. And the greater the ratio, the higher the civilization. When one person can feed ten people, well then, nine can go off and build a pyramid or create the beautiful music of the nation, build a telescope, play the piano. Farming must have become enormously productive a thousand years before Moses. And that really in itself is very interesting to me because you don't have a lot of time to work with since the flood. It really speaks to the ingenuity of God's image bearers. And friends, when one person on a John Deere can feed 10,000 people, you can pretty much go in any career you want today. You don't even think about farming because one person with a John Deere feeds 10,000. That's God's common grace. But friends, don't forget to thank God for the farmer. And of all of our abundance, remember verse 15. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. God is good. And God is going to feed you today with a John Deere and a diesel engine because God will not violate the oath that He swore to Noah. And now let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. And let's observe what Jesus has to say about common grace. In Matthew 5, we we come across the most famous sermon preached in all of human history. And Jesus Himself has something to say about God's goodness, both on believers and unbelievers. Matthew 5, verse 45, in the middle of the verse, Jesus makes an emphatic statement concerning God's goodness. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The sun, friends, is essential to the survival of our species. It warms our earth and keeps us from freezing to death. Now, for some odd reason that I do not understand, today's billionaires, Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, seem to have a real fascination with space travel. I think it's very odd. Elon Musk wants to see us become a multi-planetary species and to colonize Mars. Well, I have a problem with this. The Noachian Covenant does not apply to Mars. It doesn't. It applies to Earth. Mars' average temperature is negative 81 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm not going. 
life here on planet Earth, where God sustains our orbit at 94.5 million miles from the sun, is really very, very nice. Very nice compared to Mars. God gives us that sunshine. The sun is equally critical for photosynthesis and the growth of our crops. And likewise, the rains that fall from the heavens across the Great Plains. Friends, they don't just fall on the fields of all the believers. Like, oh, there's the edge of the believer's field. Okay, the rain just stopped right there. No. God sends bountiful sunshine and rainfall on all of His creatures. Every last one of them. Now, have you ever noticed how verse 45 is situated in context here? It's really quite interesting. Back up to verse 43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That happened with the Roman emperors. Pray for those servants that God has appointed who persecute you so that you may be the son, be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? That's the context. Jesus tells us to love our fellow man, even those who hate us, even those who persecute us like an emperor. And why would you ever do such a thing? What's the answer? Because God does. That's what God does. Every day, God just pours out His bountiful sunshine and His revitalizing rains even on those who reject Him, even on those who hate Him. God loves His enemies. And He just goes right on blessing both them and us. And when you really begin to grasp this, you'll be better prepared to use the doctrine of common grace evangelistically. So let's turn to just one more passage and let's notice how Paul in Acts chapter 14 will use this doctrine evangelistically. Acts chapter 14. In this account, we find Paul and Barnabas coming to Lystra. And with the power of God, they heal a lame man, crippled from his birth. When the crowds observe it, they mistook Paul and Barnabas for incarnations of the Greek gods, of Zeus and Hermes. But it's very curious to read the apostles' response. It's found in verse 14. Very interesting statement of common grace. When the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Notice this, in past generations, he allowed, here's His mercy, all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet, He did not leave Himself without witness. Here you have these rebellious nations going off in their own ways, but God does not leave Himself without witness. For He did good 
by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. The apostles proclaim that God has been tolerant of rebellious nations. Psalm 2. There are those nations. And God has always, in addition, provided a witness of His own existence to all the nations. And what is that witness? Literally, it's the rain out of heaven. It's fruitful seasons. And friends, it's good food. Look at verse 17. Yet He did not leave Himself without witness, for He did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Truett Cathy found the Chick-fil-A on good common grace theology. Food is essential to life, therefore make it good. That's, that's good theology, I think. God's witness to Himself in verse 17 is to satisfy, to satisfy your hearts with food and with gladness. Who designed your taste buds to enjoy good southern barbecue? I mean, who did that? Think about that. Or how about the lamb that Brother Pierce grilled for us on July the 4th? That was really, really good. Or if you have a sweet tooth like me, praise God. Think of the words of Psalm 104, verse 14, who made the wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Friends, every culinary delight reminds us that we participate in a grace-saturated world. This is why Paul says whether you eat or whether you drink, you do it all for God's glory. We breathe God's air. We live in houses constructed from God's trees. We drive on roads constructed from God's rocks ground in the asphalt. We zoom across God's heavens at 500 miles per hour in these mighty engines built from metals that were mined out of God's earth. We live, friends, in a grace-saturated world. And by simply bowing our heads unashamedly at a local restaurant, we testify to those dining all around us that we are children of the good God who fed the pyramid builders and who feeds us today. Friends, by simply thanking God for everything, we can testify to anyone of God's grace to everyone. Let me conclude with an illustration that I think will really help us now understand how we can use this doctrine evangelistically. My first year, my first year in the faculty at BGU, I had a student from Thailand where our, uh, the, the sea rights are laboring. Looking forward to hearing from them in the next hour. In Thailand, this young man was searching for answers to life's ultimate questions. And so he shaved his head and he donned brilliant orange monkish robes. He entered a monastery and began practicing Buddhism, the very strict vehicle of Buddhism. He maintained a rigid vegetarian diet. He ate very little. He practiced meditation and sat in a lotus position for hours and hours on end. He was not allowed to feel pain. 
He was supposed to just let all the physical world just evaporate all around him. No attachment to the physical world whatsoever. That's Buddhism. He was not allowed to feel pain. And his teacher would come along with a great big thick rod and strike him across the back. And he said, I had a problem. It always hurt really badly. For the strict Buddhist, pain has to be an illusion. An illusion. In fact, the physical creation is to be shunned as an illusion. For the Buddhist, the path to nirvana is denial of our physical existence. And when you get to nirvana, you're gone. Snuffed out like a candle. You're gone. You cease to exist as an individual consciousness. You find the same truth in Hinduism also. Buddhism is a complete denial of our created human goodness. The goal of his monastic education was to wean himself off of any attachment to creation. And my student, who was an image bearer of God in a Buddhist monastery, confessed to being absolutely miserable. And I suspect that that's the norm. Well, how did this guy end up at a Christian university in the United States as a born-again believer? His answer to that question was this, soccer and Kentucky Fried Chicken. Near his monastery was a soccer field connected with a Christian mission. And as a monk, he watched Christians out in that field with a deep sense of longing. They stretched out their legs, they filled their lungs with air, and they ran to the glory of God. They laughed, they panted, they sweat, they stampeded across God's green earth, chasing a ball, exercising their humanity with joy and with gladness. And my student, who was just stiffened by hours of sitting without flinching and having been beaten mercilessly, longed to go out and enjoy God's creation like those, like those Christians. So one day, he just went over and introduced himself. And they began sharing their faith with him. And he kept thinking, man, I wish a Buddhist could play soccer. And then they invited him to Kentucky Fried Chicken. In a moment of weakness, he succumbed. And they fed him one of God's scrumptious birds. And he experienced verse 17. His heart was satisfied with food and gladness. I'll never forget the day that I invited him to come to one of my classes and to speak on Buddhism. Afterwards, I, this, is, this is before my kids were even born, I, I, my wife and I took him out to a Thai restaurant and I told him, you can order whatever you want off the menu. And he took that to mean as much as he wanted and that was a big mistake. <laughs> it just, he just kept coming and coming. Well, he, he, he came to my class and gave his testimony on Buddhism. He got as far as Kentucky Fried Chicken. And he described his experience in words reminiscent of Psalm 104. Wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine. And he recalled the grease dripping down his fingers and down his chin as a bewildered Buddhist monk. And he said, I've got to become a Christian. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Your goodness surrounds us. Lord, we live in a
very comfortable situation here in the United States. We have the abundance of food, the luxury of travel, the abundance of clothing, warm houses in the winter, cool houses in the summer, cars to drive in, medical insurance, Lord, which so many people around the world don't even enjoy. Wonderful medical facilities, Lord. Lord, You've been just so abundantly good to us. We thank You for the rain we've received this summer. We thank You, Lord, that we do not live in an arid desert. That we are not being pounded with a great storm as in Noah's day. Lord, You send us the water that we need to enjoy the crops that we have. We thank You, Lord, for the truckers that move up and down the interstates and all across for east to west this country, bringing us foods from afar. We thank You for the great steam engines and the diesel engines. Lord, we thank You for the ingenuity of man which allows us, Lord, to eat and to drink and to be satisfied. And I pray, Lord, that You would make us truly grateful people. You have not given us anything to be ungrateful for. So we ask that You would just fill our hearts with gladness and joy, and may all that we do be done for Your honor and for Your glory, and may even in eating and drinking we be a testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the saving grace of His Son. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.